Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. Let's turn over to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, and this morning we're going to be looking at verses 47 through 62. The story is told about Fiorello LaGuardia, who, when he was mayor of New York City during the worst days of the Great Depression and all of World War II, was called by adorning New Yorkers the Little Flower because he was only five foot four and always wore a carnation in his lapel. He was a colorful character who used to ride the New York City fire trucks, raid speakeasies with the police department, take entire orphanages to baseball games, and whenever the New York newspapers were on strike, he would go on the radio and read Sunday funnies to the kids. One bitterly cold night in January of 1935, the mayor turned up at a night court that served the poorest ward of the city. LaGuardia dismissed the judge for the evening and took over the bench himself. And within a few minutes, a tattered old woman was brought before him, charged with stealing a loaf of bread. She told LaGuardia that her daughter's husband had deserted her. Her daughter was sick, and her two grandchildren were starving. But the shopkeeper, from whom the bread was stolen, refused to drop the charges. It's a real bad neighborhood, Your Honor, the man told the mayor. She's got to be punished to teach other people around her a lesson. The Guardia sighed. He turned to the woman and said, I've got to punish you. The law makes no exceptions. Ten dollars or ten days in jail. But even as he pronounced the sentence, the mayor was already reaching into his pocket. He extracted a bill and tossed it into his famous sombrero, saying, Here is the ten dollar fine, which I now remit. And furthermore... I am going to find everyone in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a town where a person has to steal bread so that her grandchildren can eat. Mr. Bailiff, collect the fines and give them to the defendant. So the following day, the New York City newspaper reported that $47.50 was turned over to a a bewildered old lady who had stolen a loaf of bread to feed her starving grandchildren. 50 cents of that amount being contributed by the red-faced grocery store owner. While some 70 petty criminals, people with traffic violation, and New York City policemen, each of whom had just paid 50 cents for the privilege of doing so, gave the mayor a standing ovation. This morning we are going to begin to talk about good news for those who have blown it. The gospel is good news for people who have completely blown it. And so we're going to begin reading in Luke 22, verse 47. And we're going to begin as Jesus is on the mountain praying with his disciples, or I should say he is praying and his disciples are sleeping. He continues to go back to his disciples and say, look, you need to be be in prayer. There are some serious things going on and I need you to be in prayer so you can stay away from temptation. And it says this in 47, that while he was still speaking... So even as Jesus is is telling and and warning his disciples, this crowd shows up. There came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? 
And when those who were around him saw that what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, he said this, have you come out as against a robber? with swords and clubs. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. So here in this passage, we see that even as Jesus is warning his disciples and preparing his disciples for what was ahead, the guys show up. He is saying, rise and pray that you may not enter temptation. In mid-sentence, Judas and Luke makes sure we know that he's one of the twelve. This isn't just a Judas who happened to be following Jesus around or trying to keep an eye on him. This is Judas, one of the twelve. He's one of the disciples that had spent his last three years with Jesus Christ. He had seen all the miracles. He had experienced all the blessings of Jesus Christ. He had just received the very first communion from the very hands of Jesus Christ himself. And it's this one, this disciple, this friend, this partner in ministry who now turns his back on Jesus Christ. He is the one who betrays Jesus. And as Judas shows up, there is a whole battalion of men following him. Swords, clubs, and they're coming after Jesus. Now Jesus asks a simple question. Why now? Why now? I was with all of you day after day in the temple. We spent the last week or a couple of weeks here in the temple teaching people. I was amongst you. You heard what I had to say, but you never laid a finger on me then. And it's not until now in the cover of darkness that you come to arrest me. He's making sure that they realize that what they're doing is not right. He's making sure that they realize that, look, you had every opportunity to arrest me every single day while I was in the temple, but you never did it. And now here you are arresting me in the cover of darkness. And not only that, but he says this, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. He's making sure they also realize that this isn't just a human invention to arrest Jesus Christ. That there is something more sinister behind the scenes that all the power of hell is aligned with these guys to arrest and destroy Jesus Christ. There's something much more... um, Sinister and evil happening behind the scenes. That these people are actually working in league with Satan himself. Let's move on to verse 54, to Peter's denial. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval, about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly, this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. 
But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And this this word for weeping bitterly is also the same word that you would describe when someone would weep over someone who had recently died. This isn't just kind of a sobbing, kind of, oh, I feel sorry for myself. This is a gut-wrenching response. Just, uh, just a, an all-consuming weeping that is being described here that Peter went out and did. So here it is, Peter denying Jesus Christ three times, and he fulfills Jesus' prediction. When Jesus told Peter that he was going to deny him, Jesus knew what Peter would say. He knew when he would say it, and he knew how he would say it. He knew everything about Peter. He knew Peter better than he knew himself. So how did Peter get to this point in his life? How did Peter get to the point where he was so confident in what was going to happen, he said, I would go with you even to death. And now here confronted with, with a young servant girl, He's unable to stand up and confess who Jesus Christ is. So how did Peter get to this place? And I think this is helpful for us because it gives us a bit of a warning. Lays down some things that we see in Peter's life that we can look back to and say, Lord, we want to begin to build our life on different things. So first, how did this happen? Look back in verse 33 of the same chapter. Jesus is talking to Simon, or to, to Peter, after the, they had celebrated communion for the first time. And Jesus says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter responds in Peter fashion, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Hey, Lord, that would never happen. Don't worry about me. I got this one. I'm in control. And his own self-confidence and his strength and his abilities, he insisted that he would never deny Jesus Christ, even unto death. He said, I would never do that. Don't worry about a thing. I've got this one. So that's the first step. He was self-confident. There was, this, there was, there was pride in his life. They thought, there's, there's things I would never do. Now we move on to the second thing. There's a neglect of prayer. In verse 40, we see this. Verse 40 and 46, where they're on the mountain, and Jesus is telling his disciples over and over again, pray that you may not enter into temptation. There's, a, there's a, a, in a sense, a stern warning from Jesus Christ that says, look, there is danger ahead, and you need to be in prayer. This is not peacetime. We're in the middle of a war here. And Satan is seeking to destroy you. And you need to be in fervent prayer for your own soul's sake. And how do the disciples respond to this? They sleep. They completely shrug off anything Jesus is saying, and they go back to sleep. Even after Jesus' warnings to them. Peter sleeps on. Third thing what happens is this, in verse 55. We read this. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Now, here Peter is. He has 
He has been self-confident. He has been very, he's been insistent that there's, man, Jesus, don't worry. I'll go with you to the grave. I'll go to prison with you. I've got this one. Jesus has continued to encourage them, the disciples, to pray. He's sleeping. Now Peter's around just a group of people who have no fear of God in them. And it's not wrong to be around people who have no fear of God. That's not the point. But the point for Peter was that he was trying to disguise himself, trying to hide who he was. He was ashamed of who Jesus Christ was. He didn't want anybody to know that he was a believer. And instead of being salt and light and the testimony of Jesus Christ amongst people who do not know God, he's trying to conceal that he knows Jesus Christ, trying to hide it from them. He's not there to be salt and light. He's there to conceal his identity. And at this point in the story, Peter picks up the noose and puts it around his own neck. There's danger ahead. Now, number four, the opportunity presents itself. It's just a young servant girl who makes a simple statement. This man was also with him. And here the disciples were not on trial. No one was going after the disciples after the disciples at this time. They've not been charged with anything. They've not been arrested. There's very little to be at stake here for Peter to say, you know what, yeah, I do know him. Probably nothing would have happened. They may have questioned him or whatever, but he wasn't in any danger of being arrested or killed or executed. It was Jesus that everyone was after. So here Peter, this simple girl, this little girl just says, he was also with him. We see a self-confidence, we see a neglect of prayer. He's around people who have no fear of God. And it all comes crashing down on Peter in an instant. The noose has been tightened. It's too late to escape. And now overcome with fear, Peter comes out with a very strong and forceful, I do not know him. I do not know him. This is not a, ah, maybe, yeah, I've seen him before. Yeah, I've heard some, you know. He says, I don't know anything about this guy. He doesn't know Jesus in the least bit. He knows nothing about Jesus. This is a wake-up call for all of us. I'm going to read to you a quote from J.C. Ryle. He says this, The best and highest saint is a poor and weak creature. Even at the best of times, whether he knows it or not, he carries within him an almost boundless capacity of wickedness. However fair and decent his outward conduct may seem, there is no sin he may not run into if he does not watch and pray and if the Lord's grace does not uphold him. When we read how Noah, Lot, and Peter fell, we are only reading about how we ourselves might fall. Let us never presume. Let us never indulge in the high thoughts about our own strength or look down on others. Whatever else we may pray for, let us daily pray that we may walk humbly with our God. There is an encouragement for here in this passage that if the guy who has spent the last three years of his life with Jesus Christ, who had promised to go with Jesus to prison and to death, who was with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, who had confessed Jesus Christ as the Messiah, who had witnessed the power and ministry and miracles of Jesus Christ, who was the one who Jesus said he would build his church upon, if that guy really messed things up, where does that leave the rest of us? It's a call for us to examine our hearts and our lives. It's an encouragement for us to examine what is going on in our hearts and in our lives. What are the desires in our hearts? What are the things that are raging war inside of us? 
Are we dabbling in sin or with sin? Is there selfishness, pride, greed, lust, gossip, jealousy, anger, unforgiveness? Is there a desire in our hearts to, to hide our identity as believers around people at work because we, we're afraid they're going to make fun of us? Do we have unrepentant sin in our lives that we know God is calling us to repent of? Have we been neglectful in prayer? Have we been sleeping when we have been called to pray? The noose might already be around our neck. And given the right circumstances, we will be in trouble. We are about to take communion, not this second, but we're going to take communion when we're done. If you need to repent of something, if you need to get right with God, do not take communion until you do so. I strongly encourage you, before you go to take communion today, make sure that your heart is right before God. If there is sin that you need to repent of, if there is neglect in your life from areas that God is calling you to persevere in, this is an opportunity for you to repent and receive the grace and mercy of God. Don't take communion until you get right with God. And then take communion and celebrate. This week, I was helping Michelle and the kids get ready for school. It was a Thursday morning. And usually, when we try to get all the kids ready for school on Thursday mornings, it's chaos. It's absolute chaos. There's kids everywhere, and everyone's hungry, and everyone's got to get dressed, and everyone's got to shower. It's just, life is, life is crazy on Thursday mornings at the Hampshire house. And so in the middle of all the chaos, Michelle comes up to me, and she says, you know, I, I try to work out most mornings during the week, and so I'm like, I try to get in early so I can get home, you know, before 7 o'clock or so, so I can help Michelle with the kids. And Michelle's like, honey, maybe on Thursday mornings you would skip working out and just give yourself fully to take care of the kids. So I'm like, really? I mean, like, I can't do anything for myself now? And so in my heart, I was angry. And so I said to her, I'm like, well, maybe I should get up at 4 o'clock in the morning then, and then I can get a workout in, and then I can help you with the kids. And that reply wasn't so smart. It was actually quite ridiculous, because then I said some other things after that that just wasn't very helpful in the moment. You guys ever been there? So there's a proverb that says, a word aptly spoken is like... um, apples of gold and settings of silver. And I think my words at that moment were rotten apples in a landfill. It just wasn't a blessing. It wasn't, didn't help anyone out. And I just continued to open my mouth and just say ridiculous things about how like, hey, I'm doing all the work here and you're just kind of like putting your makeup on. And, you know, like it just, it wasn't helpful. But in the moment, I was angry. I was proud. I was unhelpful. I was argumentative. And so... She goes and takes the kids off to school, and I head into to church here. And as I sat down to think about my morning, as I sat down to think about how the morning progressed and what, what I said and just how unhelpful I was, I thought to myself, man, instead of being a blessing to Michelle and the kids, I was angry. Instead of helping, I was being selfish. Instead of, instead of serving, I was being foolish. And I just thought to myself, I was like, man, this, this happens like every week. So this isn't just like I had a bad Thursday. This happens every single Thursday of my life. And I was just thinking to myself, is there any hope for me? I've blown it again. 
is there any hope for me? I, I've, I've opened my mouth and I've said stupid things. I've said ridiculous things. I've not been a blessing to my family. I, I've brought strife into our home. I, I've, been, I've been angry and argumentative and selfish. I thought, is there any hope for me in this moment? Here, I, I, I want to do these, these good things. I, I've got all these plans to be a blessing to my family, and I'm not. Is there any hope for me? And as I sat at my desk, I looked down at this text, and I said, I know exactly what Peter is feeling right now. He thought the exact same thing. Is there any hope for me? I've blown it again and again and again. And I felt the weight of this text just come crashing down on me like a ton of bricks. And after I'd blown it over and over and over again, I see the beauty of God's unmistakable, unbelievable, unstoppable grace being poured out over and over and over again. Here in the very first section where he's getting arrested, who gets his ear cut off? A guard. The very guy who is going to lead Jesus on to his death. He's there to take, he's not there to be friends with Jesus or try to be nice to him and help him out. He's there to escort Jesus to his death. And you better believe those guards, when they pulled Jesus away, were not taking very nice care of him. They were abusing him and mocking him and hurting him. This is the very guy whom Jesus knew would be the one who would be pushing him and mocking him, who is there to hurt him and and torture him and beat him. And what does Jesus do? He heals his ear. This is unasked for. There's no faith in the heart of the guy who who was healed. There's not like this guy who cried out to Jesus. He said nothing. This was his enemy. This was an enemy of Jesus Christ. And without any apparent thanks, or, wow, that was awesome, maybe we should leave this guy alone. Without any of those things, Jesus yet healed the very guy who was leading him to his death. That's grace. That's the grace of God. And even after Peter denies Jesus three times, what do we read in verse 61? The Lord turned and looked at Peter. This is not a look of of, of disgust. This is not a look of, I told you so. This is not a look of, I can't believe you do this, because Jesus knew all along what was going to take place. Jesus knew that Peter was going to deny him three times. And in the mercy of God, as Jesus is being beaten and tortured and mocked and ridiculed and spit upon, he finds Peter in the crowd. And he remembers Peter. And he looks at Peter. I believe this is a look of grace. This is a look of grace. Because even as Jesus is telling him about Satan wanting to, to sift Peter like wheat, he says, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I still have a plan for you. I know you're going to fail, but I still have plans for you. I'm still going to use you. I'm still going to lavish you with grace. I'm still going to restore you, and I'm going to use you to restore your brothers. It's unbelievable that he would do this. He still has mercy on Peter and purpose for him. He found Peter and he looked at him. He turned to Peter. And even as Jesus had unjust trials and torture and the cross before him, he still looks to Peter. Even when we deny him and turn our backs on Jesus, he doesn't turn away from us. Even when we scorn his instruction and his purposes, even when he says, stay awake, 
pray and we fall asleep, He doesn't turn away from us. Even when we have blown it over and over and over again. Even when you open your mouth and say the most ridiculous things to your best friend. Even when you open your mouth and say hurtful things to your spouse. Over and over and over again. Jesus doesn't turn his back on us. This is the same powerful grace that Zacchaeus encountered. The same powerful grace that the sinful woman found. The same powerful grace that the blame the, the lame and the blind and the paralytic and lepers received. The same powerful grace that children, the same powerful grace that pursues lost sheep and searches for the lost coin and receives back the prodigal son, that raises the dead, that casts out demons, that confronts injustice and hypocrisy. This is the same grace that meets us right where we're at, even in the midst of our denials, even in the midst of our disobedience, even in the midst of our of us turning our backs on God, Jesus Christ finds us and he looks to us. That is a look of grace. This is the story of God's pervading grace to enemy soldiers and disciples alike. This is the grace of God. I want to close with this. I just want to read J.C. Ryle one more time. I really I love this guy, but he says this, the love of Christ towards his people is a deep well which has no bottom. Let us never measure it by trying to compare it with any kind of love men and women can give. It exceeds all other love in the same way that the sun exceeds all other light. Christ's love is a mine of compassion, patience, and readiness to forgive sin. Let us never be afraid to trust that love when we first feel our sins. Let us never be afraid to go on trusting it after we have once believed. No one need ever despair, however far he may have fallen, if he will only repent and turn to Christ. If the heart of Jesus was so gracious when he was a prisoner in the judgment hall, we surely need not think it less gracious when he sits in glory at the right hand of God. That is the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. It is good news for those who have blown it on Thursday mornings and Friday mornings and Saturday mornings. It's good news for those who show up at church, who don't desire to be there, who don't sing the songs, who could give a rip, who are distracted and, and hurried. It's good news for all of us that somehow in the midst of our brokenness, Jesus Christ finds us and looks to us. He hasn't forgotten about us. He hasn't turned away from us. He remembers us and he looks to us in the same way that he remembered Peter and Peter's brokenness and Peter's denials. And he loved Peter and he looked to Peter and he had a purpose and a plan for all of his life. That is the goodness and grace of Jesus Christ. My encouragement to us today is this, that as we distribute communion today, that we would take this moment and that we would come before Almighty God realizing His goodness and His mercy and His grace is available to us. And that we would lay our lives down before Him and that whatever area He has been speaking to us about or whatever area He's putting His finger on right now, that we would surrender and submit that to Him knowing that His grace is available for us. Amen?
Lord Jesus, we come before you now as we get ready to partake in communion, your, your body being broken, your blood being shed for us. God, and we want to take it with clean hands and a pure heart. So Lord Jesus, we repent. We repent of our pride. We repent of the times that you have told us to stay awake and pray and we have fallen asleep. God, we repent of the times that you have You've been there for us and we've turned our backs on you. We repent of the times that we have tried to, to, to hide from people who we really are. We repent of the times that we have been so confident of our own abilities and have neglected your grace. God, we repent this morning. And Jesus, we ask us for you to cleanse us and to forgive us and to look upon us again and fill us with your hope and your mercy and your goodness. And God, I pray that we would take this communion, God, with a heart of thankfulness because you are all that we need. You have provided for us life and hope and relationship. And for that, we thank you. We surrender our lives to you again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to distribute the elements and I want us to all take it together. But I do want us to just take a moment now do business with God. Take this opportunity to come before the Lord and speak with Him and talk with Him, repent and, and, and ask Him for faith and ask Him for the, the power to continue to walk in His ways in all of our lives. And then we will celebrate and take it together.